Good morning. How are you today? Good, good. I don't know about you. That, that music kind of gives me go. Here we go. Anyway, right out of college, I had a unique opportunity to be a part of a startup that was absolutely taking off straight out of the gate. It was a church that was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that God was using in a really, really profound and a, and a very fresh and new way. And so this was kind of where I cut my ministry teeth, if you will. And the pastor of the church is Ed Young. He's my wife's cousin. And one day I came back from seminary classes and Ed invited me into his office for a little chit-chat. And I thought when he invited me in, it was just kind of be like, how's the weather? You know, you and Julie are engaged. How's the wedding planning coming along? And that sort of a thing. And so I came in, he said, Mac, close the door. And so I closed the door and I sat down and he said, you know, Mac, I want you to know, I am really glad that you're here. I, I'm really excited that you're a part of this team. And, and, and so I'm sitting there thinking, I'm so green. I, I'm just like, man, this is awesome. We're just hanging out, chilling fat. And, you know, and, and he said, I want you to know something else, Mac. I really believe in you. I think you've got a lot of potential and and I'm sitting there, and I was so green, I never saw the big butt that was coming in this conversation. And so the conversation kind of rolls on, and Ed says, Mac, I want you to know something. I love you, but I'll fire you. And just in my own little private conversation in my head, I was thinking, well, then maybe you should love me a little less. You know, I mean, if I love you, but I'll fire you is where you're coming from. And Ed went on to describe a number of areas where I had fallen short, where I was not living up to my potential, where I was not cutting it for the job that had been assigned to me. And, and I took this meeting to heart. Now, I would love to tell you that I sat there in that meeting and I walked out of it properly chastened and saying, Ed, thank you for bringing this to my attention. I'm so excited about this opportunity to grow and develop as a human being and in ministry. But I did not respond that way initially. When I left Ed's office, I was hacked off. I mean, I was mad. How many of you, like when you, when you get initially confronted with something, your gut knee-jerk reflex is to get mad. Can I just say, am I the only one? I, do, I mean, I do. How many of you who just had your hands up are husbands? Let me just, don't do it, guys. I'm just telling you. So I was, I was like, ugh. And so I, but I didn't say anything out loud in the moment. And that, at least one time in my life, the Holy Spirit controlled my tongue. And I, and I walked out of that office, and I remember thinking, who does he think he is coming after me? And I began to process through this conversation. And in the next few hours and days, really, I, I realized that God was doing something really profound in me. Because number one, I realized that Ed was right in every single thing that he said. He was right that I was not cutting it. I was being a good guy, but I wasn't producing. I wasn't focusing, and, and I needed to get better at what I did. And God began through that conversation, that milestone moment in my life, to really cultivate some very real grit in your pastor. I, I began to realize you know what, I do need to get better. I, I need to listen to his counsel. I need to do a better job at what I'm doing, and I need to focus more in general in everything that I'm doing. But it wasn't only grit 
that God was cultivating in me in that moment. And it was actually a few years later that I really realized something else that God was cultivating in me through that conversation and specifically through Ed. And that is that God was cultivating in me wisdom that I desperately needed, that I desperately lacked at that moment because I began thinking when I walked out of Ed's office, I'm out of here. I, I am checking out on this guy. He comes after me talking. I'm, I'm out. I'm going to go. And it was then that God began to stir something in my mind and in my heart as I realized there's nowhere else that I'm going to go that somebody loves me and cares enough about me to have a straightforward conversation like that with me. He didn't attack me personally, but he clearly attacked my performance. And as a matter of fact, as I said, he was right in every single thing in that moment that he was talking about. And if I would stay there, God would use Ed, God would use that circumstance and that situation to develop and to grow me as a person. And so God began to kind of cultivate this conversation. And more specifically, he was cultivating wisdom far beyond my own natural sense and far beyond my years at the time. And I realized in that moment that God wanted to do something in my life and that wisdom is actually the soul of grit. I'm going to say that again. Wisdom is the soul of grit. Now, as a church family, we began this message series last weekend talking about grit, looking at the life of Daniel, the Old Testament Proverbs, you, the Old Testament prophet. You've probably heard Daniel's story, Daniel in the lion's den, or maybe you're familiar with Daniel's closest friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But the story of Daniel is absolutely rife with grit. Now, before we get into the subject of wisdom today, I want to make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about grit. Well, what is it that's going on? So I want to ask everybody, if you will, take out the program that you got when you came in today. It says grit on the front. Take that out and open it up to where it says message notes. If you would just open that up and maybe here in the top right-hand corner, just write down the word grit down the page, just G-R-I-T, kind of small in that upper right-hand corner. I'm going to give you a working definition for the word grit. Taken from the life of Daniel, an observation over the years. Grit is just this. You ready? G is God-honoring. R is relentless. I is intentional. And T is tenacity. God-honoring, relentless, intentional, tenacity. Grit, in a word, means don't quit. Tell your neighbor right now with passion and enthusiasm, don't you quit. That was a great warm-up. Now I want you to look at your neighbor again and tell them, like, I, mean, I, want you, I want some grit down in your voice, okay? Some grit in your voice. Tell them, don't you quit. God-honoring, relentless, intentional, tenacity. Man, you see this over and over and over again in the life of Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 2, as we pick up where we left off last weekend, we see Daniel exercising and cultivating some incredible God-given wisdom. Now, 
Wisdom, it's very important that you understand this. Wisdom is not kind of out in the ether, pie in the sky philosophy. Wisdom works. Wisdom is what makes life work best. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in Luke chapter number 7, Jesus addresses this component of wisdom. Look at what he says in Luke 7, 35. He says, wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. That means that wisdom works. It's not just kind of a a philosophy that gets thrown around and people kind of show to be out there and possible. Wisdom works. Let Let me give you an example. There is a philosophy afoot in our world that every child should get a trophy. That, that if, they, if they show up, they should get a trophy for just having a pulse. And it's a cute little theory. It just doesn't work. Now, let me say this at the very beginning. I am all for encouraging children. I am all for inspiring them to aspire to be the best that they can be in everything that they can be. But ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, can we just admit that not everybody gets a trophy? How many of you go to work day in and day out? Let me just see a show of hands. If you get paid somewhere by a paycheck or or maybe you run your own business, man, how many of you know not everybody gets a trophy? And so we are completely debilitating kids in this generation by giving them a trophy. Johnny, way to go. You have a pulse. You showed up. You're awesome. And little Johnny never discovers what he's capable of. More importantly, little Johnny or little Johnita never discover what they're capable of rebounding from, of what they're capable of coming back from. How many of you know that one of the great skills in life is the ability to rebound and to pick yourself up and to keep going again? This is grit. This is a philosophy, this everybody gets a trophy philosophy that just doesn't work. And if you are ever responsible for a sports league or a youth sports association, please promise your pastor you will not give a trophy to everybody. I feel kind of passionate about this in case you couldn't tell. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't work. And I know right now, some of you are going to get, I'm like, oh, Pat, that's so mean-spirited. Kids should get trophies. If they win, <laughs> if they win, they should get a trophy. But you know what? I have discovered I have lost in life. Has anybody here ever lost? Let me see a show of hands. If you've ever lost a game, a contract, a relationship, You have to learn how to rebound from that. You have to learn how to get back up. You have to develop some grit. So philosophy is cool as far as it goes. We'll get a cup of espresso and talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. But wisdom, Jack, wisdom works. And especially God-honoring wisdom. This is what you see in Daniel chapter 2. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, there's an amazing story going on that God saw fit to record for us in the biblical record. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the most powerful person on the planet at that time, 
has a distressing dream one night. And King Nebuchadnezzar, or as his friends called him, Nebi, Nebi woke up the next morning and was greatly distressed. And so he assembled all of his kingdom magicians and wise men and sorcerers and asked them to interpret the dream for him. But Nebi put a little spin on it. Not only did he want them to interpret the dream, he wanted them to prove their worth as wise men and magicians by telling him what the dream actually was. And as you can imagine, the magicians were kind of taken aback by this. They were like, well, King Nebi, I mean, that's, that's a great idea. We would love to interpret this dream for you, but you need to throw us a bone here. You need to tell us what was the dream you had first. And Nebi wouldn't do it. He was not having any of it. He said, no, 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 I'm not telling you the dream. You tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. Now, you, you think you've got a demanding boss? Nebi was a demanding boss. And not only was Nebi demanding, Nebi had some anger management issues because, as you would imagine, the, the sorcerers and the magicians in Babylon could not tell the king what he actually dreamed, much less interpret it. And when they went back to him and said, we can't do it, cannot do it, we, we don't have the ability to tell you what you dreamed, King Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that all of the wise men in Babylon should be put to death. Just boop, see you, off with their heads. Not like a cut and pay, not like we're going to assign you somewhere else in the organization. You're dead. And the wise men in Babylon included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so one of the king's guards went to Daniel's house to kill him. But look at what the Bible says about how Daniel handled this problem. Check this out. Daniel chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. When Arioch, who was the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, don't you, I, that's just kind of funny to me how matter-of-factly, when he came to kill them, when he came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? And so Arioch told him all that had happened. You see, Daniel had a very real problem. He was about to be killed. But Daniel being killed was not the central issue. And Daniel took the first step of wisdom with old Arioch there in his doorway. And that is that he identified the real problem. He identified the real problem. <clears throat> Excuse me. I get emotional every time I talk about Arioch. <clears throat> Daniel didn't freak out. He didn't like flip and go, what? You can't kill me? I've been good to the king. I've been good to the king. He didn't do that. How many of you have ever noticed when you're under stress or you feel anxious, we focus on secondary issues rather than root issues? How many of you, I, I know in my life, when, when we get stressed out and anxious, we sometimes major on minors. Anybody else feel like that ever? I, I know I, I've seen that. Matter of fact, I saw this played out in a really pronounced way just a few months ago. 
I was involved in, in a very minor fender bender car accident that I was responsible for. It was completely my fault. I was at a red light and, and I've got, you know, a big white pickup and there was a little, very little <laughs> Mazda Miata right in front of me. Very little. <laughs> and, and the light turned green and this Mazda started to accelerate and was going and I started to go and I reached down to change the station on, on my radio and when I went to change the station, I collided with the rear end of this little Miata and, and I hit him. And you know, here's, here's the thing about when you hit somebody from behind, it's your fault. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. It's just you're bad. And so I got out of the car and I was like, you know, my B, I'm sorry. And the woman who was driving the Miata in front of me, she, she, got, she was very animated. She, she was very, very expressive in her frustration with your pastor. And she said, what did you do? I don't understand what happened. I just, I had to stop because the car in front of me stopped and then you just slammed into the back of me. What's wrong? I didn't, and I, and I was, uh, ma'am, I'm sorry. Listen, I, it was my fault. I was wrong. I promise you, I will cover all the damages. I'm a pastor. A lot of people know where I live. I'm not going anywhere. I, I will take care. She goes, I know, but you, you, you just hit me from nowhere. And all of a sudden I've got to get this car fixed and everything. I was like, and so I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, we're kind of, we're out here on B Caves Road. We're kind of close to, close to the church. And it would be bad if, like, people from the church started driving by and saw this woman attacking their pastor. And so I was trying to de-escalate the situation, and, and I said, I said, ma'am, I promise you, it's, I, I was wrong. It was my fault. I am so sorry. And, and if you, my name is Mac Richard. It's spelled like Richard. And if you'll give me your information, I will make sure that we get this taken care of. And all of a sudden, she began to kind of come down. She said, I'm sorry. She goes, I've had this car for eight years, and I've never had a wreck until you came along. <laughs> she didn't say that. But when she told me that, then I could kind of, I could empathize a little bit more, and, and I said, I said, man, I, I am so sorry that I've sullied your perfect driving record, and, and it was, it, you didn't do anything wrong, it was my fault. And she goes, no, duh. And so... But you see, initially, she was freaked out because I had hit her. But that wasn't really the central issue. The central issue was this car that she had kept in pristine condition was now tarnished by me. And, and that was what was really bugging her. How many of you kind of maybe could identify with that to say you, you know what it's like when you get sideways with another person? Or maybe you get frustrated by something at work and you lash out at the something or the someone, but that's not really the issue. You know, I've seen this as a dad with, with, with Emily and Joseph. I've noticed something in my life. Anytime I get really kind of frustrated or quickly angered with my kids, it's my fault. Now, that doesn't mean that they handled everything perfectly, but if I get frustrated with them, then that means that I haven't adequately communicated to them either the expectations or adequately and consistently enforced the consequences for them missing the expectation. And so if I don't do that and they keep missing the expectation, that's not their fault. That is dad's fault. And so, but when they mess up, and I've adequately communicated the expectation and the consequences that they missed the expectation, I don't get frustrated. I just go, oh, man, Joseph, Emily, I'm so sorry that you blew it. Keys, please. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, I'm so sorry that you responded like that. If you could just hand me your cell phone, I would greatly appreciate it. I don't get mad. I don't yell. I just go, hey, cell phone. And they're like, um, could I give you my arm instead? Identify the real problem. Whatever the challenge might be, whatever the situation, identify the real problem. That's what Daniel did here. But, but Daniel wasn't through yet. The story goes on in, Luke, in Daniel chapter 2. And after Arioch explained to him everything that had happened, verse 16, Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Now, don't miss how important that is. Don't miss how bold that was. Daniel was trying to spare not only his life, but all of the wise men in Babylon. And he went straight to Nebuchadnezzar and asked for just a little more time. He, he, just, he just went straight to old King Nebi and said, could you give me just a couple more days? And then look at what happens. Verse 17. Then Daniel went home and he told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. You know, when you encounter a problem that requires wisdom, that, that, that is a, a dilemma of what to do, seek help with the problem. Just seek help. Matter of fact, with passion and enthusiasm, tell your neighbor right now, get you some help. Now that's different from you need help. <laughs> but just seek help with the problem. You know, a lot of times our New Year's resolutions fail because we're doing it alone. We're doing it by ourselves. Daniel had a very real problem. He didn't know what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. He didn't know what had happened. And the first thing he did was he went to his closest friends, those guys that he had been through the fires with in their training in the early years in Babylon. He went to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and asked, let's pray together. Let's ask God for his wisdom to see what's going on. Seek help with the problem. But it doesn't just stop with, with friends. What did they do? They prayed. They said, God, give us an insight. Give us your help. Give us your wisdom for this problem. I wonder this morning, how many of you have a work problem that you don't know what to do with? You don't know what the end game is going to be, but you know that things as they stand right now are not a long-term solution. 
Or how many of you, maybe in a relationship, maybe, maybe as a parent, you just kind of like, I don't know what to do. You know, after our first service this morning, a good friend of mine was in the lobby, and his very young son refused, I mean refused, to put his shirt on. So, so we had this, this young man running around our lobby with, with no shirt on. And, and, and his dad was just standing there holding the shirt. And he just looked at me and goes, what do I do? I mean, he will not keep it on. I said, you know what? Pick your battles. If he won't keep it on, that's fine. He's not offending anybody around here. He's cut, man. I mean, that's great. That's awesome. So <laughs> if he doesn't want to wear a shirt right now, it's not like you're at dinner at the White House. Now, there's going to come a day when he needs to have a shirt on. Right now, in that moment. So, when you reach those moments, ask God for help. The book of James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who richly gives every good and perfect gift. So whenever you need wisdom, ask. Ask for it. God, I need wisdom. As a husband, Father, oh, Father, dear Heavenly Father, I need wisdom. As a, as a mom, how many of y'all are moms? Let me see a show of hands. Good night. Talk about the front line battle for wisdom. I love Bill Cosby's line. He's, he's talked about his wife just one day reaching her wit's end and looking back at her children whom she had born into this world and saying, you roll those eyes at me, I'll roll that little head of yours. <laughs> Moms, my goodness, the need for wisdom is constant. I remember when Emily was starting preschool we were looking for a Mother's Day out for her to attend. And Julie came home one day from visiting several different Mother's Day outs in the area. And she said, Man, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really torn about this. I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I was like, what's, what's the problem? Are we talking about Harvard? or I mean, what's up? And she said, well, some of them are two-day a week and some of them are three-day a week. And dumb me, I went, so? She's three. She goes, Julie said, you don't understand. Some are two day a week, and some are three day a week. And I said, you just said that. She goes, you're not listening. Some are two day a week, and some are three day a week. And I said, honey, this is just me. You were, you were an education major. You have been trained and schooled in this. It doesn't matter. She goes, what do you mean it doesn't matter? This is our child. How can you say it doesn't matter? I said, she's three. She'll be fine. And we went to two-day-a-week Mother's Day out. 
Emily got into college. Ask for help. Ask for help from close, godly friends. That's the beauty of life groups. You know that card that's in your program this morning, Commit, Grow, and Serve? Life groups give you the opportunity to ask your friends, to have godly friends that you do life with, that you can ask the really hard questions, two-day a week, three-day a week, Mother's Day out. What do we do? Mom-to-mom, Bible studies, Seek help with the problem. Daniel didn't stop there. He went to King Nebuchadnezzar and he said to him, verse 27 and 28, There are no wise men, there are no enchanters, no magicians or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future now. I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. I love how direct Daniel is. One of the benefits of genuine godly wisdom is the ability to be direct. You don't have to beat around the bush, but you can be direct with somebody. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, nobody's been able to do this. And the fact of the matter is, I can't do it by myself. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. There is a God in heaven who is the source of all wisdom. And he said, now I'm going to tell you what your dream was and what it meant. Now, the dream itself is really kind of interesting, just by way of background. It's interesting. I mean, it was like Nebuchadnezzar had had some bad mushrooms or something for dinner the night before. It was out there. But, But he saw this massive statue, an image almost like a man. And Daniel said that the head of this image was made of pure gold. And then the arms and the chest were made of silver. And the trunk and the upper legs were made out of bronze. And then below the knee, the legs were were made out of iron. But then the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And Daniel went on to explain to Nebuchadnezzar his dream, and he said, Then, king, you saw a massive stone, a boulder, carved out of a mountainside, not by human hands, come against this massive image and shatter it into millions and millions of pieces so that the gold and the silver, the bronze and the iron and the clay were scattered like wind to the four corners of the earth. Now, here's what the dream meant. And he went on to explain that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was represented in the head of gold, that it was the greatest kingdom known in the world at that time. But that one day that kingdom would fall by the hand of a lesser kingdom. And then that lesser kingdom would itself fall. And all kingdoms eventually would fall except the stone that destroyed those kingdoms was a kingdom that would last eternally, Daniel said. And he said, King Nebuchadnezzar, this is what God has revealed this is what will happen. And so Daniel showed Nebuchadnezzar how to actually deal with the problem. How to actually deal with the problem. He identified the real issue. He sought help with the problem, but then he actually did something about it. He confronted Nebuchadnezzar with the real problem. 
I want to take you back in time, about 23 years to when I was sitting in that pastor's office. And he said, Mac, I love you, but I'll fire you. I had to deal with the real problem. The real problem was not him. He was actually very kind, very gracious. He told the truth, and he was also very, very wise because the problem was in me. The problem was I had to get better. I had to work harder and smarter. I had to focus. I had to deal with the problem. Real wisdom deals with the problem. Real wisdom confronts the issue head on in love, whatever it might be. Real wisdom does the right thing and lets the chips fall where they may. Do the right thing and let the chips fall where they may. You know, a lot of times we don't want to confront a problem because we're afraid of the consequences of the confrontation. Like, uh, I, you know, I don't want to bring that up. I don't, want to, I don't want to mention that. But real wisdom, godly wisdom in love, deals with the problem. Now, I said earlier that Nebuchadnezzar had some real anger issues, and to be sure, he did. But Nebuchadnezzar was not dumb. Look at what he did with Daniel. Look at how the chapter concludes. Verse 48. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. And he made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon as well as chief over all his wise men. Verse 49. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's court. Now, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. That's pretty cool. Daniel used this influence with Nebuchadnezzar. He was elevated to a, to a greater position than he had ever had before, to a greater position than anyone else in the kingdom save Nebuchadnezzar. But look at what he did. He reached back and remembered his friends. He used his influence selflessly. Now, when God grants you wisdom, you will have influence. You will lead people. You might even have the opportunity to speak truth to power. But always remember that that influence is given to you to use selflessly, to use to help other people. See, it would have been easy for Daniel to receive this huge promotion, these monetary rewards and material gifts from Nebuchadnezzar. And be kind of like, sweet, I have arrived. I am the man. But the first thing he did was he requested Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to also be given positions of influence. Godly wisdom makes a difference everywhere it goes. 
Godly wisdom makes a difference everywhere it goes. So when we talk about grit, when we talk about this God-honoring, relentless, intentional, tenacity, specifically as it relates to the new year and resolutions, you can know you're going to need some wisdom along the way. But when God grants that wisdom, remember to use it selflessly. When God grants you influence and favor over other people, with other people, use it selflessly to their benefit. Daniel is an Old Testament type. He is an Old Testament type or a foreshadowing of Jesus in the New Testament. Because just as God used Daniel to preserve a remnant of Israel in Babylonian captivity, God so used Jesus to preserve a remnant in this world for his purposes and his kingdom. So it's not surprising that Daniel acted with wisdom and used that influence selflessly because no one has ever used their influence more selflessly in the history of ever than Jesus Christ. Whatever you want to think about Jesus, whatever you believe about him, I think you would admit he's had more influence than anyone just by sheer numbers of people who have chosen to follow him and to come under his influence Nobody else in the history of the world even comes close. And it wasn't because he was wealthy, because he wasn't. It wasn't because he was particularly popular, because they ended up executing him. It was actually precisely because he used, because he used his influence selflessly. He gave himself up for you for me. The Bible says that he took the very nature of a servant and gave his life for you and for me. The greatest influence that the world has ever known. As we look at the life of Daniel, as we learn from the life of Daniel, never forget that God chose to include Daniel's story in the biblical record precisely to point us to Jesus. Precisely to prepare us for the message of the life of Jesus himself. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would never die, but would have eternal life. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved, forgiven. Selfless influence. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to ask just a very, very pointed 
personal question. Have you replied to Christ's offer of grace? Have you responded to his initiative? Sometimes people will say, you know, Pastor, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good guy. And the reality is that all of us, on our best day, all of us need forgiveness. And so Jesus died once for all. But you have to decide what you are going to do with that. Will you accept and receive that gift and commit your life to him? Or not? If you're here today and you've never done that, we want to invite you to do it right now. To pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of commitment, a prayer of confession. A prayer of relationship beginning once and for all. Just right where you are. Silently talk to God in your own words, something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. And in exchange for your life, I give you mine once and for all. I confess my sin. I claim your forgiveness. In Jesus' name. I want to ask you just to stay in a spirit of prayer for a moment with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. But if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, then I want to ask you, if you will, just raise your hand. If you'll just raise it high over your head and hold it there for a moment. And I want to tell you why we do this. With your hands up, this is for you. For you to know that this moment is real, that this is what God has done for you to mark this moment. And as you put your hands down, we want to make sure that you understand how significant this is. The Bible says when one person Anywhere on the planet, when one person comes to repentance, all of heaven celebrates. That's kind of a big deal. 
And as a church, we kind of think that's a good example to follow. So we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home.